Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Thank you. And uh, thank you for inviting me to share in this very special day. Thank you to the organizers of Muslims for Peace. And uh, thank you to the other honored guests. I'm very pleased to share the podium with you. I bring you greetings of peace and grace today from my congregation in Columbus, Ohio, which is First Community Church. You should know that they rejoice that I am with you today. They celebrate that you have invited me to participate in this day and appreciate you. We are also, um, as was just mentioned, part of a larger uh, umbrella group called a denomination, which is the United Church of Christ. So I thank you for your hospitality. I thank you for the warm welcome, and I thank you for the invitation to speak with you today. As I have been learning more about the Muslim faith and your holy scriptures, one of my favorite sayings from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is this. When we walk toward God, God runs toward us. It is my conviction that when we are gathered as we are today, to share in our faith traditions, we are truly walking toward God, and God is running toward us. There is also a quote from Khalil Gibran that I think maybe every speaker should say at the beginning of every presentation. It comes from a book called Sand and Foam that was published in 1926. Gibran writes this, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it so that the other half might reach you. I hope that I do better than 50% today, but now we have had the disclaimer. We have all been watching events in the Middle East. In late January, when the protests were beginning in Egypt, I reminded myself and the people of my church that God does some of God's best work in the midst of chaos. All we can see is confusion and uncertainty, but God sees with different eyes and sees a future that we as human beings cannot even imagine. It was only a few weeks later that we saw the dancing in the streets, people chanting, freedom, freedom, freedom people crying tears of relief and celebration. Their joy, I think you will agree, was infectious. It was as if you could feel the palpable emotion and joy in the air. And we also saw something quite wonderful in Tahrir Square. When the Muslim people bowed down for their prayers, a group of Christians made a sheltering circle around them. And when the Christians bowed down to say their prayers and have their worship, a group of Muslim people circled around them and provided protective shelter for them. What could be a more holy and sacred moment than people showing this reverence for each other and for their faith traditions? I am quite certain that God delights in this action. It is truly living out the call of, Quran, of the Quran that we should all try to live and behave like Allah, like God. 
and that in the presence of vulnerable people, we would spread over them like wings of tenderness. Early on in the demonstrations in Liberation Square, I saw someone carrying a banner that had both a crescent and a cross. And the, com the caption on the banner was, One Egypt, One People. It seems to me that God would like that to say, One Creation, One People. After all, as Sheikh Sharaf said, diversity was God's idea. In the words of the Holy Quran, which we cannot say often enough, O mankind, we created you from a single soul, male and female, and made you into nations and tribes so that you may know one another. This is the world as God intended it to be. People of all faiths, of all colors, of all backgrounds, of all personalities, meant to engage with each other, learn from each other, appreciate each other, cherish each other, treasure each other, love each other. Unfortunately, as Egypt has moved off the front page, the story has been somewhat different in other countries, particularly Libya. At the moment, there is no dancing, in the streets. There is only massacre in the streets. We must pray as St. Paul of my tradition says, pray without ceasing that the dance of freedom will come to the people of Libya as well. During this time, we have seen what the best of the media can contribute to the world. We see journalists literally risking their lives to show us, to tell us, what is going on in the Middle East right now. The internet, television, newspapers are wonderful sources of information. They took us into Liberation Square, and they can provide, they can provide, intelligent, mindful voices about what is happening in the world. Remember, it was Facebook. Facebook that played a key role in organizing the protests in Egypt. Who would have dreamed 10 years ago that the man who stood up in Liberation Square and when he made a speech and people were just enraptured by him, it was the guy who runs Google. Who would have dreamed this? What a, what a miracle this is, really. It was the internet and the television coverage that showed the world what was happening and showed the people of Egypt that the world was watching and paying attention and caring, caring about what was happening to them. And this is happening right now in Syria, in Jordan, in Yemen, and in Libya. Particularly in this internet age, it is impossible for Muammar Gaddafi to massacre his people in the dark. It is impossible to do this in secret. And it is a combination of the international media and everyday people with their cell phones that are spreading this word around the world. For the most part, 
on the mainstream media, American networks and websites, I have observed fairly responsible, even-handed coverage of what's going on. Having said that, it seems that there was a tone of almost amazement that these protests in a predominantly Muslim part of the world were not primarily motivated by religion. Did you pick up on that from the news anchors? They were sort of astonished. They kept saying, well, where, where does religion come into this? It actually seemed to take some convincing for them to recognize that the protesters wanted what most people in all of creation want. They want free elections. They want the rights of citizenship, economic opportunity, an end to government abuse and corruption. Muslims, Christians, Jews, we all want these things, and we all have a right to demand them. And so I think you could say there was sort of a learning curve for the American media, a need to adjust the lens and see the Middle East in a broader way, not just through the lens of religion. And now I'm going to say what is obvious. The internet and the traditional media have the capacity to spend way too much time and attention on extreme voices. Voices of ignorance and hate and fear. There are those commentators, who I will not mention by name, but I'd love to. There are those commentators who are either, either grossly ignorant about Islam, or, and I think this might be worse, they know better. And they choose to be irresponsible in fanning the flames of hate and fear. The good news is one of them, whose name I will not say, has seen a dramatic drop in his ratings over the last few months. You know, peace doesn't happen out here on the fringes. Peace happens here, in rooms like this one. Peace happens where people live and work and get through their daily lives. Now, to be fair to the American media, I think that this, generally speaking, it is not about deliberate distortion. It is just a lack of knowledge about Islam and the Muslim world. And to be fair, the same can be said about coverage of the United States and Christianity around the world as well. I think a great example of this is the word jihad. I'm sure most Americans, and probably even most American journalists, understand jihad to be a holy war waged by Islamic extremists with the West, particularly America, as the target. Part of that is the result of the way the extremists themselves use the word jihad. Would you agree with that? But a fuller, deeper understanding of the word jihad, as I understand it, has to do with doing battle with those negative parts of ourselves. Things like our failings, our prejudices, our habits, those things that keep us from being fully living a life that Allah, that God would want us to live. This is the true meaning, or one of the meanings, of jihad, but it is not well known. 
Now, an example on the other side of this is what I experienced last fall. Um, as was mentioned in the introduction, when the Florida pastor, Terry Jones, was threatening to burn the Quran on the anniversary of September 11, I spoke out against the destruction of the Quran or any sacred text. There is nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in the teachings of Jesus Christ, that advocates burning the Quran or any sacred text. It is not there. It's not there in the English, it's not there in the Greek, it's not there in the Hebrew. It's not there. My sermon, as you have heard, went viral on YouTube, an unexpected development in my life. It was seen around the world, and as a result, I was interviewed by a number of international news organizations, primarily from the Middle East. First, they had the impression that what I was saying was unusual. And actually, across America, religious leaders all over the country were reading from the Quran from their pulpits on Sunday morning and were speaking out against this abominable act. So while I happened to land on YouTube, many, many, many leaders around America were speaking out in the same way. But it was very interesting to me, the reporters from the Arab world all asked me the same question. If the American people are against this, if Christians and other people of other faith traditions are against this, if your president condemns this, why doesn't someone stop him? Why, well, yeah. Why is he allowed to say this? Why is he allowed to keep saying these inflammatory things? Well, I tried to explain that this is what life is like in an open society. We hear things we don't like. That is what freedom of speech and our understanding of the way we want to live is like. And so as there is media misunderstanding of, there's a gap of understanding of the Muslim world and of Islam, there's also a gap in understanding for the United States and our open society. And many of you may have experienced that yourselves. Typically, it is the job of journalists to make simple things that are not simple at all. To talk in quick sound bites, snappy quotes about very complex situations. Psychologists talk about black and white thinking. And that tends to be how news stories are, are written black and white thinking. Stories are divided between good and bad, between right and wrong, between heroes and villains, and there's no room in much reporting for nuance. But peace, peace, I believe, happens in the gray area. Peace happens not in the shallow end, but when we wade into deep water together. This is where peace happens. The Gallup organization, the Gallup Poll, has been uh, studying all kinds of attitudes, but over the last 10 years has put a special focus on studying the attitudes and beliefs of Muslims all over the world. Here's what they've learned that you probably will not see in news coverage that is oriented only toward good guys and bad guys. 
When asked to describe their dreams for the future, Muslim people do not mention fighting in a jihad, but rather getting a better job. That probably doesn't surprise anyone in this room, does it? What Muslims around the world admire most about the West is technology and democracy. What Americans value most about their own culture is democracy and technology. The two groups had the exact same two responses when asked about these questions. When Muslims all around the world are asked what they least admire about the Western world, they say a perceived moral decay and a breakdown of traditional values. When Americans are asked the same question, they give the same answer. What we worry most about in our culture is a decline, a moral decay, and a decline in traditional values. It is the nature of the media to draw distinctions, to make comparisons. And so the emphasis is always ends up being on how we're different, this over and against that. When in fact, what we have learned from the Gallup data, which is pretty self-evident, it's what we learn from living together and working together, is that we are so much more the same. Differences exist absolutely, but there are so many things that we hold in common as human beings and as people of God. Division makes a lively news story. Coming together is what makes peace. I said a moment ago that I noticed a tone of surprise or amazement when it has become evident over the last couple months that religion is not the driving force between what's happening in the Middle East. The driving forces are political, economic, and social. And as it turns out, according to the Gallup data, this is exactly the key to making peace. Between March of 2008 and May of 2010, Gallup conducted 123,000 surveys in 55 different countries. They asked people, do you believe that conflict between the Muslim world and the Western world can be avoided? Do you believe conflict can be avoided? A majority of people in predominantly Muslim countries, as well as the United States, Canada, Asia and Europe all said, yes, conflict can be avoided. You know, we see so much news coverage about the hostility between Muslim people and um, others in, living in Europe. But in Europe, that confidence number was the highest. 69% of the people polled believe that conflict can be avoided. I find this data to be incredibly hopeful. You know, you get the impression by watching the news that, that we're all feeling completely hopeless about all of this, and yet the data says something different. The other piece that I find very hopeful is that when people see conflict rooted in um, identity-based things, which would be religion or culture, they are less optimistic that it can be resolved. 
But when they see the root cause of our conflicts as political, social, and economic, people see the conflict as avoidable and as something that can be resolved. And because they see it as avoidable, they feel more confident that we can work toward a solution. This data is really hopeful. This shows us the way forward. This data calls us to broaden our perspective, to see issues through a broader lens, and to see a hope for solution. I'm always encouraged, as I'm sure all of you are, that we might see conflicts as solvable. But I must tell you that as a religious leader, I, uh, I am convinced that our faith does not make us less able to resolve our differences. There is a wonderful quote from an international Jewish leader. He is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of the United Hebrew Congregation in the UK. He says this, God has given us many faiths, but only one world, world in which to coexist. Our work must be to help all of us cherish our commonalities and feel enlarged by our differences. And I love what Rabbi Sachs says about our sacred text, the Bible, and what it says about God. Don't think that God is as simple as you are. Don't think that we can confine God into categories. God is bigger than religion. The work of multicultural, multi-faith living is not easy. Muslims, Christians, Jews, we are family. We are the children of Abraham. I think if we are honest, we can say that we don't always, 100% of the time, get along fabulously with our families. We are human, after all. Sometimes our, our most uh, dialed up emotions, sometimes our hottest feelings come out in our families. And that's okay, as long as we approach our differences with respect and love and a determination to see our brother, our sister, as God sees him or her. We must do more talking to each other and less talking about each other. And when we talk about... And when we talk about each other, when we talk about another faith tradition, we really have to make an effort to speak out of knowledge and learning and not ignorance and fear. Multicultural, multi-faith living requires, I believe, Curiosity mixed with kindness. When we approach each other with a kind curiosity, we acknowledge that we have a lot in common and we have our differences. But instead of saying, whoa, I don't like that, I don't like what I hear you saying, we more often say, hmm, well, let me tell you about me and you tell me about you. And then we will look together at God after we get talking, done talking to each other, we'll look together at God. 
one God who created all that is and ever will be. This work requires a healthy dose of humility. In the New Testament, the New Testament book of Luke, Jesus goes to dinner at the home of a religious leader. He notices that people are very careful, even strategic, about where they sit. And Jesus, as he typically did, as also the prophet Muhammad did, he took what people thought and he just turned it upside down. And Jesus said, when you are invited to dinner, take the lowest seat, not the highest seat. Don't assume a position of privilege. Jesus is telling us that we are in very dangerous territory when we put ourselves on top, when we put ourselves at the head of the table, when we presume this position of privilege. And you know, the presumption of privilege can be a lot of it can be about a lot of things. It can be about money, it can be about power, race, education, job, status, you name it. Privilege can be about an idea that we have cornered the market on truth, on faith, on who God is. A conversation about God demands grace and openness, a willingness to learn, to have our own ideas challenged, our convictions questioned, these are the hallmarks of humility. When I was in seminary, I read a quote from someone who I'm sad that their name is lost to me now. But this person said, when you speak of God, your voice should shake a little. This year, this September, we will commemorate the 10th anniversary of 9-11, the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. We, we will remember and we will grieve together. We will also thank God for the resilience of individuals and our nation, the ability to heal, to live again, to laugh again, and to embrace life with a sense of hope. I'm sure that there was loss in this community, although I now realize I'm at a college and most of you were 10 years old at the time, so I've forgotten how old I am. <laughs> but I'm sure there was loss in this community. There was loss in every community. It is my prayer that when we remember September 11th, we will spend as little time as possible on a small group of extremists and that we will spend a lot more time on the Muslim Americans who lost their lives on that day. And the people of faith, Muslims, Jews, Christians, who stepped in to help. And I pray that we will remember the one and a half billion Muslims around the world who cried with us, shared our grief, and shared in our healing as well. Let us remember Mohammed Slaman Hamdani. He was born in Pakistan, but he came to the United States as a young child with his parents. He played high school football. He went to college. He took a job as an ambulance driver. When he heard about what was happening at Ground Zero, he went toward the disaster. 
And he was 23 years old when he died on that day trying to save people. Let us remember Mohammed Salahuddin Chowdhury. He was a waiter at Windows on the World. He died that day, and his wife had their baby two days later. Let us remember Rama Salih. She was a young woman, 28 years old. Her neighbors described her as friendly and outgoing and generous. And she was seven months pregnant when she died on American Airlines Flight 11. Let us remember all of the people of all faith traditions who stepped in to help. Muslim people, Christian people, Jewish people, Hindu people, Buddhist people, atheist people, all those people who saw what was happening at Ground Zero and went toward the suffering. I've heard about the young people of one Muslim community in the New York area who took bags of socks to distribute to people who were escaping from the towers. They'd seen on television that you know people lost their clothing and their shoes, and so they gathered up socks. When I heard that story, I immediately thought of Jesus Christ washing the feet of his disciples. Feet and socks. We are never more like God than when we care for each other in gentle, human, humble ways like this one. This is the heart and soul of Islam. This is the heart and soul of Christianity. This is the heart and soul of Judaism. Love God. Love your neighbor. Welcome the stranger. Be a peacemaker. It is my conviction that every person in this room, every woman, every man, every child, every sleeping child, is called by God to be a peacemaker. It is for each one of us to share our message of love and hope and peace, but let us do it always with grace and respect and above all, humility. God grant us as individuals, as a nation of many faiths, the courage and the humility for this work. Amen. I thank you. God bless you. God bless your community. God bless your work here today.